questions you always had, the answers you were never given, the place to seek the truth. Welcome to Veritas. He was CEO of a vertically integrated international corporation, making millions of dollars a year, satisfying a huge demand. The product? Cannabis. He was captured in the lobby of the Sheridan Senator Hotel at LAX following a 15-year run smuggling marijuana and hashish as part of the hippie mafia. Tonight's guest will share with us what became his new journey and the story of the eight years that followed through two federal trials and the, un- and the underworld of the federal prison system at a time when it was undergoing unprecedented expansion due to the war on drugs. He was convicted in his second trial under the Kingpin statute and sentenced to 25 years without the possibility of parole. He first learned the lesson of survival, then he learned to prevail, becoming a jailhouse lawyer and winning the reversal of his Kingpin sentence and eventual release. Greetings, I'm your host, Mel Fabregas. Subscribe at VeritasRadio.com to listen to this full interview and all of our material. Tonight's special guest is Richard Stratton, an author, award-winning journalist, and filmmaker. He was a writer and consultant for HBO's Oz, and the creator, writer, and executive producer of Showtime's Street Time. He has written many books, and his latest one is titled Kingpin, Prisoner of the War on Drugs, and we have a more comprehensive bio on our website. Mr. Stratman joins us directly from New York City. Hello, and welcome to Veritas. Hello, Mel, and thank you. Uh, thank you for having me on. It's my it, pleasure. My pleasure. May I call you Richard? Call me Richard. Thank you very much. Well, you have a fascinating story. Let me just begin by asking you this question, Richard. You call yourself a prisoner of the U.S. war on plants. Is this a way to downgrade the fact you were an international drug kingpin smuggling marijuana and hashish for 15 years? I don't think it's um, an effort to downgrade it. No, I mean, I take full responsibility for the fact that it was an illegal plant. It is now uh, semi-legal in this country. But I think the reason I call it the war on plants is just because of the extraordinary kind of symbolism that I remember seeing during that era of sort of reefer madness when you would see these helicopters, these black helicopters land in places like up in the the Emerald Triangle of California. And these heavily armed soldiers and cops would get out with uh, flak jackets on and and huge guns and they would run out. And what were they there for? Were they there to attack some kind of uh, enemy redoubt or to go to war? No, they were there to tear, rip up plants. These beautiful, lovely green plants. I mean, I don't know if you've ever really been around uh, flowering marijuana plants, but they're they're a lovely plant, and they're very much part of that plant world. They're not evil. They're, it's not the, the weed with roots in hell that it was made out to be. So the reason that I called it the war on plants was to kind of underline the fact that there's a, there's a basic absurdity to what the government was and still is doing. To think that they could outlaw something that God created. I mean, if we if we believe that God created the earth and everything in it, which I do, then he must have created the cannabis plant, too. And it's been around for centuries and centuries, been used by mankind and considered a friend to mankind until the uh, uh, the Federal Bureau of Narcotics under a guy by the name of Harry Anslinger decided to declare war on marijuana. And the real reason for that was because They had a bunch of federal agents who were formerly involved in alcohol prohibition, and they needed a job. So they looked around. They said, well, this marijuana stuff is bad. It's Mexicans. It's, you know, it's, uh, I mean, it's almost like an early version of Trump's rant. They're bringing it in from outside the country. You know, they're, they're evil people. They're, they got brown skin. They, they speak a funny language and they smoke this weird stuff. But meanwhile, <clears throat> it was jazz musicians and it was kind of the beatnik 
uh, element of society that was was using pot. So they figure, look, this is we'll we'll just we'll change the focus. We'll go. We can't go after alcohol anymore because it's legal. So now we'll go after marijuana. And they created the Federal Bureau of Narcotics, run by this guy named Harry Anslinger, and uh, they went to war with the marijuana plant and cannabis. So that's that's the real reason. I love the sort of metaphorical kind of illusions that it, it, that it that title brings. Uh, that war on plants could have called it the war on marijuana. It's a little too long, but I just <laughs> I guess I I like the idea of thinking of these heavily armed uh, cops running around ripping plants out of the out of Mother Earth. I recently had Johan Hari. On. I don't know if you know who he is. He wrote the book Chasing the Scream, and we discussed oh, all yeah. of the excellent yeah, that's book. It's an amazing book. It that's is. An incredible book. Yeah. We, we discussed Anslinger and, and, and the rest of them. I don't want to read too much of the quotes in your book, but I have to read this first one because it set things in perspective. It says, You want to know what this was really all about? The Nixon campaign in 1968 and the Nixon White House after that had two enemies the anti war left and black people. You understand what I'm saying? We knew we couldn't make it illegal to be either against the war or black, but by getting the public to associate the hippies with marijuana and blacks with heroin and the criminalizing both heavily, we could disrupt these communities. We could arrest their leaders, raid their homes, break up their meetings, and vilify them night after night on the evening news. Did we know we were lying about the drugs? Of course we did. These are words by John. Elric Mann, Nixon's domestic policy chief. Can you expound on what he said? Is this a real reason why the war on drugs as we know it today exists? Well, I believe so. I think it was uh, it was a political it, it was a political strategy from the very beginning. I think that they were concerned that uh, marijuana smokers and drug users you know, sort of hippies and uh, and and musicians and people who weren't part of the kind of button-down, uh, straight and narrow vision of what they thought America should be. Meanwhile, those were the real crooks, people like Nixon and what have you. They're busting into the Watergate uh, headquarters and, and trying to... But, but their their thing was to vilify people who smoked pot. And to make them seem like they were bad citizens, that they were revolutionaries. And, that, and to a large degree, they were or are people who were questioning the role that the government was playing in a lot of ways, particularly in Vietnam. I mean, the anti-war Vietnam, anti-Vietnam war movement was in large degree, uh, I would say, um, infused by people who also used pot and who went to... Uh, Woodstock and went to the summer of love. And there was this whole generational thing that was happening in America. And I think they were threatened by that. They realized that that, that segment of society was not the people who were going to be behind Richard Nixon. I mean, they made enemies of uh, public enemies of people like John Lennon, for instance, tried to drive him out of the country for his uh, alleged uh, possession of marijuana. Of Norman Mailer, who was my close friend and mentor, who had written about his personal use of pot, he was on the the uh, Nixon enemies list. So it was really, um, it was, it was not. I don't ever think it was marijuana per se that they were uh, all excited and upset about. I really believe that they were afraid of the element of society that used pot or that that was open to the use of it. Because, I mean, look, a lot of people who were for decriminalization, legalization of marijuana don't necessarily smoke it. It's not just uh, a bunch of hippies. It's people You can come in. Yeah, there you go. I mean, look, uh, it's it's more about personal freedom. You know, that as Americans, we should have the right to alter our consciousness as we see fit, so long as we're not harming anyone else. And, you know, I'm the first person to say that I don't think it's a healthy thing for people to smoke pot on a, on a regular basis. It's you're taking hot smoke and burning coals into your lungs could be bad for you, just like smoking cigarettes is bad for you. But I don't think that it's up to the government to tell people how they should be able to behave in the privacy of their own homes or in 
places where it, where it's legal for them or allowed for them to smoke marijuana. I mean, now, look, we have, what, over 20 states where it's legal for medicinal purposes and, what, four or five, I guess, where it's now legal for uh, recreational purposes. And those states haven't gone to hell in a handbasket. On the contrary, if you look at what's happening in Colorado, it's pretty amazing. They are in the black for the first time in 15 or 20 years as far as their revenue and taxes are, are concerned. So it's been a huge boom to the, uh, to the economy. And uh, the other thing that I've always found crazy about this is that by criminalizing marijuana, what you're doing is you're basically empowering criminals uh, because there there is a huge demand and always has been so i mean the, this the whole kind of narco state of mexico was was fueled by money that came originally from the marijuana business but then ultimately cocaine and heroin now and methamphetamine and whatever other drug but <clears throat> that's what you're doing by criminalizing these drugs you're empowering the most ruthless lawless elements of our of our society. Absolutely. And in the book, as Americans, we have the right to alter our consciousness as we see fit, so long as we are not hurting anyone else. And by the way, folks, in case you're wondering if I'm a pothead, I'm not. But as a libertarian, this statement resonates with me. If you're, if you're an adult, why should I care about what you do if you're not infringing on anyone's rights and you're not hurting anyone? Absolutely. I couldn't agree with you more. And when it comes to all of these issues like, oh, you know, the hot, hot button issues like abortion and all these other different things, these are personal choices. And as Americans, we should have the right to choose how we live to up to the, to, to the point, as I say, where we're not harming other people. But we should have the right to choose what substances we take, what substances we don't take. I mean, alcohol, we all know, has been legal for since prohibition was ended and look at the damage that that drug causes i mean it's extraordinary and what's the biggest cause of uh ill health in this country today obesity and obesity comes from <laughs> from the very legal uh consumption of food so you know it's really it's more about i've always said rather than just say no no we should say just say no K-N-O-W. And what we need to do is we need to have practical, uh, informed education about drugs, drug use, and the harm that it can cause you and the damage it can do to your life. Because there's no question that if you become addicted to drugs, you're going to have a very unhappy life. It's not going to be a good thing. You can become addicted to gambling. You can become addicted to food. You can become addicted to any of these things. It is going to destroy, ultimately, your peace and your, your enjoyment of life. So that's the real thing that we need to, I think, educate children from an early age. You know, the other thing about pot was that because it was the forbidden thing that, you know, everybody was like, oh, you smoke marijuana. It's the weed with roots in hell. The next thing you know, you'll be running around raping young women and you know, carrying on like a maniac. So when I was in high school and heard these things, the reefer madness uh, propaganda that was out there, we were like, oh, man, we got to try that stuff. It sounds like it sounds like it would be fun. So, you know, and then we smoked it and we were like, well, wait a minute now. Um, I don't I don't feel like going out and in committing crimes. I don't feel like going out and raping anybody or, or doing anything that's absurd. I just feel like sitting here and listening to this great music and maybe uh, going out and getting something to eat. You know, and, and, and I can remember actually the first time I got high. It was like, I'm, I must have been uh, 17 or 18 years old going into my senior year in high school. And what we used to do in those days was we would go out in our cars and we would park somewhere in a lonely street somewhere and drink beer. That was the thing. And sometimes we drank this malt liquor stuff that got us really loaded. Then we would usually <laughs> go out and get into fights and start, you know, really raising hell, half drunk or drunk. Now, one night we're there and we're getting ready to bust up the, get the bottles out of the trunk. And this friend of mine pulls out this joint from, from his cigarette package. And we were all like, oh, wow, marijuana. Oh, man, that stuff. We've heard about that. Read for Madness is crazy. We smoked that. We're going to really be in trouble. And then we're like, okay, light it up. <laughs> so 
we lit it up and we smoked it and we sat there and we were listening to the news and LBJ came on and he started talking about bombing North Vietnam. And we sat there and we were like, who is this guy? He sounds familiar, but could this really be the president of the United States? It sounds like Uncle Cornpone from down on the farm. <laughs> He's talking about we got to go over and kill them Vietnamese. And we were blown away. We heard it in a whole different way. So, you know, it, it, it's always struck me that what really happens with marijuana is that THC, tetrahydrocannabinol, which is the uh, active ingredient in it, yeah. op- opens up the 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 kind of shut down areas of your brain that you may use for dreaming that you may use when you're creative but when you smoke pot it seems to stimulate those right lobe parts of the brain so that you hear music a little bit deeper your food might taste better sex is much better so that's really what happened and it kind of opened my mind in a way and i thought wow this is very interesting this stuff i need to find out more about it that was how it all began. And then, of course, I ended up going to school in your state, your home state, in the state of Arizona. I went to uh, the uh, University of Arizona in Tempe, mm-hmm. Arizona State. And, um, you know, I was on a wrestling scholarship. I was a wrestler in, in uh, high school and went went to wrestle at uh, Arizona State, uh, or University of Arizona, I mean Arizona State. The University of Arizona is in Tucson, right? That's right, right here. It is in Tempe, yeah, there you go. So... Um, it was then that I began going into Mexico, and uh, first time was uh, I smuggled in, I think, three kilos. It was three kilos of pot, which I hid behind the door panel. And- but, but give us a story of uh, how did it begin before you put that on the door and panel? How did it get to be that way? Well, my, my roommate was an older guy. He was a graduate student. And he was a he was a member of SDS. He was a bit of a radical, even there in in Arizona, which was, you know, and those are Barry Goldwater countries. That's right. It was kind of it was a Republican state, and was a little bit, but but he was kind of unusual. So he had this great international pickup truck. We used to go on these camping trips on the weekends, and we decided to go to Mexico. We went to Mexico, and as we were coming back, we stopped in a. Uh, well, for lack of a better word, I'll call it a brothel bar sort of place on a on the Mexican side of the border. And we went in there, and his his words to me, I'll never forget. He goes, "I'm not going with one of these girls unless she looks like Marilyn Monroe and only wants ten bucks or something like that." So we sat at the bar, we ordered a couple of drinks, and of course the girls came around, and he disappeared immediately. With <laughs> so I was like thinking to myself, "Wow." wasn't exactly Marilyn Monroe, but anyway, so the, I said to the guy, the guy said, the, the bartender goes, well, do you want a girl? And I said, you know, I want some mota. And he said, oh, yeah, okay. So he calls this kid over who couldn't have been more than like nine or ten years old, speaks to him. And Which means him, pot in Mexican jargon. Mota, yeah. So uh, he tells the kid, take this guy and show him where he can buy some pot. So he takes me down the street to one of those places where they repair uh, blow out, blown out tires, gombos or whatever they call it. I forgot what they call it. See, and he introduces me to a guy whose name was Pepe. I'll never forget the guy. He looked like Humphrey Bogart. He was a little, little guy, and he goes, well, you know, look, I, I got, he shows me kilos wrapped up in newspaper. And I said, well, I only want to buy a little bit, you know, a little bag. And he goes, I only sell kilos. So I said, well, how much? And he goes, $100 a kilo. So I gave him, I had 300 bucks, I gave him $300 and I bought the three kilos. Then I went back and borrowed a screwdriver from him, went back to my friends, he was still gone with the young lady, and unscrewed the door panel of his truck and hid them in there. Now my thinking was, I'm not going to tell him it's there, because if I oh, wow. tell him it's there, he's going to get too nervous. So I'm just going to pretend like it's nothing, nothing is unusual here. Now he comes down and he's wasted, completely wasted. He says, you got to drive. So, so I drove back and I'll never forget crossing the border. When we stopped, pulled up at uh, U.S. Customs, the guy goes, looks in the car. He sees my friend passed out in the, and he, he knows immediately. These are a couple of college kids. Have been oh, these Americans. Great. Yes. Yeah. Yeah. So he goes, how long have you been in Mexico? And I said, you know, a couple of days. He goes, what was the purpose of your trip? And we just, you know, tourists playing around. He looks in the car and he goes, okay, go ahead. And I'll never forget the, 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 
rush that I got. I mean, when I, I was driving into customs, my mouth was dry. My hands were sweating. I was nervous as hell. But when I drove out of there, I was suddenly got this amazing adrenaline rush. And then in those days, you know, there were no dogs, sniff, dogs, uh, dope sniffing dogs. When you got to the airport, there was no security. I mean, back in those days, America was a free country. And you could get on an airplane with your suitcase and just check it in and go. So I flew back to Boston, which is my hometown. And my one of my close friends that I grew up with had an older cousin who was something of a pothead. And he said, oh, I can sell that stuff. And about, it took him maybe two or three weeks. He sold it all. And I made $1,500 from a $300 investment. And I thought, wow. This is cool. So I did it twice more. What um, year? That year. That was 63. 1963, 64. I think that was, yeah, it was was the winter of 63, 64, spring of 64. So uh, I was a freshman at uh, Arizona State, and I quit after that, and I took the money that I made. I did two more trips after that, saved all my money, and um, boarded a plane in in Boston and flew to England just with the uh, idea of I'm just going to travel around the world, use this money that I have and, and uh, go to places like Nepal and uh, India and Afghanistan and and um, check and see what they got there. And then we started, I started bringing uh, people over, couriers over, and we had these false bottom suitcases. We put the hash in the bottom of the suitcase and send them back home. Then they would send somebody over with the money. And we did that for, I did that for um, 18 months, two years. So wait, we, we, we know how you began the, the marijuana purchasing and importation, but the hash, how did you start that? Well, we, my, my goal was to go to all of the countries where they were producing sort of the best cannabis in the world. And that would include places like Afghanistan, Nepal, and Lebanon. So I went to Beirut. And while I was in Beirut, I scored some hash from a guy. And then I got busted with it at the uh, hotel. They just came to my, my room and they busted me. And I thought, oh, shit, this, I'm in really in serious trouble now. But in fact, the whole thing was a setup. They took me to the judge. It was like mid 10, 30, 11 o'clock at night. They take me to the judge's home. I go back into his study, and he offers me some of that nice, rich, dark uh, Arabic coffee. And yeah. I sit down, and he goes, you're in the hashish business, huh? And I said, no, 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 not in the hashish business. I just, I'm a tourist. I just, you know, it was a big mistake. He goes, listen, we, we respect people in the hashish business over here. This man here that, you're gonna, that I'm going to introduce you to is the chief of customs for all of Beirut. From now on, you only do business with him. <laughs> this is the judge who had yeah, the, the chief judge. of customs there. Yep. A guy named uh, Mohammed Berro. And he became my heavy Lebanese connection. And heavy in both senses of the word. He was a big, heavy set guy. But he was also extremely powerful there. He could, he could get anything out of that country. And the big issue with getting hashish into this country is to make sure that it comes out of wherever it's coming out of without a red flag on it so that it looks like it's a normal shipment of whatever it is that you're using for your cover and we i did all kinds of different things you know ceramic tiles uh, uh jet engine parts things like that which we would say that's what it was and we would put something on the top that that resembled what it was supposed to be and then we would bring it into either jfk uh, by air freight, or we would bring it into Logan Airport in Boston, or then we started bringing in containers full. And uh, I would go to a place like Iraq and buy two or three million kilos of, of dates, um, blood, these dark, dark dates that they use in cake mixes and things like that, that you really can't get them in the United States. You're making, you're making Billy Hayes from Mainnet Express look like a fool. <laughs> Well, Billy, Billy started out that way, but then, of course, he got busted right at the airport. So, right. You know, yeah. But, so then we started bringing, I, I bought these dates and I shipped them overland to Beirut. And then in Beirut, we've mixed, we hid them in within, with uh, 15,000 pounds of hashish, which was the last big trip that I did that became the subject of that trial in New York. 
the uh, kingpin trial in New York when they, they when they took me to trial for uh, that that hashish smuggle, which by the way they never seized any of the hash, which was one of the things that we kept harping on at the at the trial. Where's the hash? You know, you guys say we imported fifteen thousand pounds of hash. Where is it? It was what they call a dry conspiracy, where they just you know say, well, we know you did it, and here's people who are going to testify against you. In fact. It was the son of the chief of customs in Beirut, his son, who ended up testifying against me in New York. So, you know, it was um, it was a long run, but uh, ultimately they got me. And I'm, I'm, I got to admit, I mean, I knew what I was doing was illegal. I did feel that eventually it would be legalized. I mean, I was one of the original founders of High Times magazine back in 73, 74. And even then, we knew that ultimately marijuana would be legalized in this country because, for one thing, it's so easy to grow. I mean, anybody can grow a pot. You can grow it in your backyard. It's one of the easiest plants there is to grow. So we figured, you know, there's no way they're going to be able to keep this criminalized. And I don't mean to be interjecting. I apologize. But how are you transacting during the time of the civil war in, in Lebanon? Well, that was tough. It was really tough. In fact, uh, when I finally got out of there. It was just after the Israelis invaded in 1982. And it was unbelievably dangerous. The building that I was staying in at that time got hit by a rocket. Half the top of the building got blown away. My girlfriend, who was with me at the time, was terrified and immediately said, get me out of here. We had to get her out. of. We took her to a hotel and then they drove her down to uh, Israel and put her on a plane to get her home. But I couldn't leave because I had this 15,000 pounds of hash sitting at the port waiting for the ship to come in that would take the containers out. And fortunately for me, I was so lucky. We got it on the last ship to leave the port of Beirut before they closed the port because of the war. So then I escaped. I, I left from Beirut and drove. I had my guys drive me back up through the Bekaa Valley and across the Syrian border and into Syria. And then I flew from Syria into, I actually went to India. And then from India, I went to um, Japan and then to uh, Hawaii, where I, my, my, my girlfriend was living at the time. That's how I got back in the country. But it was... It was uh, it was very intense time in, in Lebanon. You know, the war was raging and there were all these different factions. You didn't really know. I mean, there was the the Hezbollah was uh, very active up in the Bekaa Valley, which is where they where they grow the hashish. Then you had the Phalangists and you had the Maronites and all these different sects that were at war there. And then, of course, when the Israelis came in, it really it really got bad. You know, I don't live far away from the Mexican border, as folks you know. But we've all heard of the ruthless ways in which they, they run their drug business down there. But I think, Richard, wasn't that more or less what was happening here in the United States during alcohol prohibition? If we take that and legalize it, and at least decriminalize it, wouldn't that immediately cut the head of the snake in, in these countries that are supplying the demand in the United States? Would crime all of a sudden stop? Well, I think a large degree of, of the crime would stop, yes. A lot of the drug-related crime certainly would stop. You know, the fact is that a lot of low-level crimes, robberies and stuff like that, are committed by drug addicts. Now, if those drug addicts were given uh, medicinal drugs to use to, to treat their habit and put into programs. You know, nobody really wants to be a drug addict. That's the thing that I think most people need to understand. People get addicted to drugs and then that addiction becomes overpowering, takes over their lives. They need help. They need treatment. We're, we're, we're moving in that direction in this country. We're finally beginning to understand that you know, people who get involved in and in, in get addicted to drugs need treatment, need help. And it it works. It's very difficult, very hard. But it ultimately, it's like alcoholism. The AA works. But, you know, people have to work at it. So I think if they took all the money that they use now to try to stop the flow of illegal drugs, legalize the drugs, but make it so that you have to become a registered user of these drugs, and then you have to go into a, a treatment program, and you have to be weaned away from the drug, weaned up. I mean, it's what they do in England, it's what they do in uh, in um, the Netherlands, 
and some of these other countries that have a much more open-minded look at, at what it is. But just like that Ehrlichman quote says that you read earlier, it wasn't really about that. It was never about that. It's not a moral thing. They don't. They didn't care about people who were using drugs that might have been harming themselves. What they did was they wanted to use it politically to to prey on the of the elements of society that they thought were their enemies, enemies of of the Nixon administration. That's really what the, what the drug war is all all about. It's been about that from the very beginning. Harry Anslinger who was the first of the Federal Bureau of Narcotics, uh, director of the Federal Bureau of Narcotics, was a tremendous uh, a xenophobe, couldn't stand foreigners. You know, he was one of these white males who, who looked down on Mexicans, looked down on blacks. They were, the, they were the reason for everything that was wrong with America. The same, uh, you know, I don't want to mention any names, but there's, that mentality is out there again that the real danger is these brown-skinned people or these black-skinned people. and It's not that at all. <clears throat> the real danger <clears throat> is anybody, <clears throat> excuse me, who wants, to, who wants to cut down on and, and control American democracy and do away with, with the freedom of the individual. This country was founded on an incredibly uh, revolutionary idea that people should be free that the government should not be in there involved in their personal lives. They should not tell them what religion they to practice or what drugs they could take or, or how, what sexual orientation they should have. These are things that as Americans, we need to make those decisions for ourselves and not have the government looking over our shoulder and telling us what we can do and what we can't do. It's not their role. It's, I mean, look, most of them, you know, uh, forgive me for saying this, but a lot of them are alcoholics, and a lot of them are, are they're not so not such great people to begin with, and they're going to tell us how we're supposed to live our lives. It doesn't make sense to me. I mean, look, where I grew up, I grew up in Wellesley, Massachusetts, which is a, a bastion of waspdom. In fact, when I was in high school, there were no blacks in the in the whole in the whole town. There were only a few Jewish families, and the Jews weren't even allowed to join the country club. But a lot of the parents of my friends were alcoholics. They went to wife swapping. They were, they were dysfunctional in a lot of different ways. Maybe had a lot of money, but they were dysfunctional in a lot of different ways. So we saw the hypocrisy of it. You know, there, was a, there was a lot of hypocrisy in this idea that the government is somehow big brother who needs to tell us how to live our lives. It's not. It's, it goes against the American way. It's really, um, I think, very destructive. Speaking of Anslinger. After researching for, you know, a past interview, I found out that his biggest concern was with, as you said, he was a xenophobe, but uh, he wanted blacks and Latinos and all their minorities and even Asians to, to be subservient. Yes, man. Mm -hmm. now, very mm -hmm. subservient. As opposed to when they were using pot, all of a sudden some of their inhibitions would be removed. I, let's call it the BS meter was removed. And they realized, wait a second, why am I being subservient? And Aslan couldn't have that. Right. right. That's absolutely true. I mean, they, look, you know, they, one of the, the Billy Holiday was one of the people that they exactly going after busting her for pot, busting her for, for small amounts of drugs. I mean, and that was, it was more a racist thing. It was really because of the, they were worried about the brown-skinned people from Mexico. They were worried about these black musicians, these jazz musicians who were, you know, had this evil music. I mean, when you read the propaganda that was put out by the Federal Bureau of Narcotics under Anslinger, it's, it's mind-boggling. It is really mind-boggling. I mean, they would make you believe that if you smoked a joint or two of marijuana, you would run out in the street and start raping on women. I mean, that's how crazy they were. So we've come a long way from them. But now, look, uh, I'm concerned about our present administration. Um, you know, the the uh, the guy who's the attorney general Sessions. has Sessions has stated that he wants to roll back these marijuana laws, that they want to try to put this genie back in the bottle, which I think is is an impossible impossibility. And if anything is going to rise get the, the young people of America to rise up again, it'll be that. 
You know, that if they start trying to say, well, we're going to start locking people back up for possession of small amounts of marijuana, we're going to criminalize it again in those states. I mean, whatever happened to the idea of states' rights, too? That's supposedly a Republican uh, idea, you know. And meanwhile, these states have said, we're legalizing it. So now the federal government's going to come in and say, no, you can't do that. I mean, even now, you know, the, 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 I have some friends who, Canadians actually, who got busted under the kingpin statute about a year ago for importing uh, pot that was grown in, in Canada. Canada's way ahead of us as far as legalization is concerned. And they were, it was being imported into the United States. They were both sentenced to life with no possibility of parole. I would have been sentenced to that myself if I had been sentenced 18 months later when they changed the law. When I got sentenced, it was minimum of 10 up to life with no possibility of parole. The judge at my trial in Maine, um, I mean in New York, a woman by the name of Constance Baker Motley was a little bit progressive. She had been the the, uh, counsel for the um, NAACP. And, you know, I I had a feeling that she'd come up through the 60s and probably, uh, you know, she let her hair down. She could probably have a good time. So I gave her this big spiel at sentencing. I said, judge, you know, look, why why is the government doing this to me? I mean, I've already got 15 years up in Maine, and it's only marijuana. And you heard these witnesses get on the stand and say Richard Stratton would never touch cocaine or heroin. We tried to get him to deal heroin. He refused, said it was bad karma, didn't want anything to do with it. But And, and this is only marijuana, Judge. And she said, well, you know, I agree with you. And I don't think marijuana is as dangerous as these other drugs either. But, she said, you refuse to cooperate with the government. And she based my sentence on that. She gave me 10 years, which was the minimum, but she ran it consecutive to the 15 that I already had for a total of 25. And then they gave me another six months, so-called, for contempt of court. So I walked out of there with a 25-year, six-month sentence. But I, I, was, I thought, this, is, this doesn't sound right. She can give me more time because I refuse to cooperate with the government? doesn't seem right. So I appealed the sentence and a couple of years later. I appealed it on the grounds that it was coercive rather than punitive. They were trying to force me to cooperate. They wanted me to give evidence against my dear friend, Norman Mailer, who was not involved. So you can give someone less time if they cooperate, but you cannot give someone more time. Yeah, that's right. That becomes a coercive sentence rather than a punitive sentence. Right. And that's illegal. Now, they do it all the time, but they don't state it on the record. They'll say... Well, it was for the large amount of drugs or whatever, but they won't say because you refuse to cooperate. And she made it very clear. She even went on to say, and now if you change your mind and decide to cooperate with the government, I'll consider reducing your sentence. So I appealed. I didn't appeal the conviction. I appealed the sentence just on those grounds that it was coercive rather than punitive. And lo and behold, the Second Circuit Court of Appeals agreed with me and they vacated the sentence and they remanded me back to court in front of a different judge. And uh, the new judge resentenced me to concurrent sentences. So it was now 15 and 10 running together. And then I got out after doing eight years. Thank, Thankfully that, you know, if I, like I said, if I'd been sentenced a, a year or two later, 18 months later, I would still be locked up to this day. You know, not the father of five children and the maker of movies and writer of books that I have become. And, you know, some people will say, well, you deserved it. You were a bad guy. You were a criminal. Yeah, that's true. I broke the law. And there's no question I deserve to be punished because it was against the law what I did. And I'm not out here trying to brag or anything, but um, I served my time. I kept my mouth shut. I did the time. And um, basically now I can walk into a, a dispensary in Colorado or one of these other states, and there I will see marijuana and all its legal glory being displayed. You know, and I did eight years for that. But but anyway, this it's the way it's the way things went and the way things were. And I'm not complaining. I'm just saying that um, it's a fascinating, fascinating experience that I went through in my life and how I've seen it change from this weed with roots in hell to uh, a recognized medicinal, I mean, it's no question that there's a lot of medicinal values to to uh, the cannabinoids. Um, people who have a variety of, of ailments have been, have found the cannabinoids to be 
um, ameliorative for them. So it's it's fascinating what's happened in this short span of my lifetime in this country and in the world with regard to this plant. I used to have a, another radio program that dealt with health, and we discussed this too, the properties of cannabinoids to be able to heal and even cure cancer. But too many of my, my guests started disappearing, literally, you know, committing quote unquote suicide or dying that I had had to stop. But, you know, when you say that you literally appealed, you literally appealed because you represented yourself. You had no legal representation. I want to know how all of a sudden you became a, a jail attorney. Well, what happened was that I was arrested in California uh, after being a fugitive for a couple of years. They finally arrested me in Los Angeles at the airport. And on the way back, when I was being transported back from California, I met a guy on the bus. You know, they, they, there's a thing called diesel therapy. And diesel therapy is what the feds do to you. They put you on these buses that take months to get you from Los Angeles back to New York or Maine or wherever you're going. The idea being that you'll be so run down and so tired and so beat up from these constant stopping. And you're shackled, you're chained, you're handcuffed, and you're on this slow-moving bus. Anyway, I met this guy who was, um, he was a, an attorney on the street, and he was a tax attorney, if I'm not mistaken. But he he started, we, we had a long time together talking. He told me, he said, listen, he said, the best thing you could do, he said, you seem like an intelligent guy. You can read and write. You need to study the law. He said, first of all, you need to get the indictment and you need to read it thoroughly so that you know exactly what the government is alleging that you did. And then you need to do what they call put in a motion for discovery so that you get all of the materials that the government has that they're going to use to try to prove their case against you. And he said, read everything you can get your hands on. Read the court documents, read the law, read, go, go to a law library, ask for, so you have a constitutional right to access to the law library, go to the law library, read the statutes that you're accused of violating. And, you know, I was a writer even before I, I got arrested. So I'd written, I'd been published in Rolling Stone and a few other places. And I was fascinated by language to begin with. I was an English major in college. So I thought, yeah, of course, it's language. It's all about words. That's what I need to do. I need to study this this new language, this language of the law. And when I got back, finally got to Maine and was awaiting trial up there, I told my lawyer, look, this is what I want to do. I want to read everything I can get my hands on. I want to create, help you create my defense, and I want to I be involved in it. So that's how I began. And I, they, they would bring me to the law library, or they would bring law books to my jail cell, and I read everything I could get my hands on. In the beginning, it was kind of like reading Shakespeare. It was a little awkward because it was dense language and different language, language that I wasn't necessarily used to. But after you get into it a little bit and you read, the more you read it, the more clearer it becomes. And then I became fascinated by the whole uh, dialectic of, of the law and, you know, how, how lawyers would argue over basically the meaning of, of two or three words in some of these appeals and some of these motions and some of these these appellate decisions that you read, like Supreme Court decisions, and it's fascinating, fascinating stuff. So I became absorbed in it. I worked with the lawyers in my trial in Maine. Of course, I got convicted, but um, we put on a, a good case, and I was on my way to the penitentiary, and they took me off the bus in, the, in, in New York, and they said, okay, we're we got another case for you. Are you ready to cooperate now? And I was like, no, I'm ready to go back to trial. Let's do it again. So they charged me under the kingpin statute. And at that point, I decided to represent myself. Now that, you know, there's an old saying that some, a man who represents himself says a, a fool for a client. But I used to say a, a fool for a client and a maniac for a lawyer. <laughs> <laughs> now, what is the, the uh, kingpin statute? What, define it, please. The kingpin statute. Okay. It's what it's uh, 848 is the, is the legal number. It's called the continuing criminal enterprise statute. And basically what it is, is you have to be you're accused of being the boss of an organization that imports or distributes over a certain amount of drugs 
in any given year, you have to be there have to be five or more people underneath you, and you have to be the supervisor, the manager, the basically the considered to be the boss of this enterprise. That is what there, there's three elements that they need. You need to produce. They need to prove that you earn substantial income, and that's. Uh, you know, kind of vague, but usually that means a lot of money, and that you were the that you were the boss of at least five more people, and you were the organizer and the manager. Those are the elements that they need to prove: the boss, that there were at least five people, and that you earned a lot of money. So, in my case, there was I, I was guilty. You know, there was no question. There was a lot of money, and there were a bunch of guys working for me, and I was the organizer and the boss. I was the so-called hippie mafia boss of that particular uh, East Coast family. And um, my defense, however, was that, uh, which was pretty good, because they had no evidence. They had no physical evidence. They only had rats that were going to testify, informants that were going to testify. And those informants were, by and large, uh, Lebanese, and they were heroin dealers. They were one of them was the son of the chief of customs in Beirut, and they they got busted for heroin and decided to give me up. So we had a pretty good defense, and I thought for a while there that uh, that I was going to win that trial because there was no evidence against me. But the judge was was very uh, crafty in the way. In fact, she stopped me in the middle of the of the trial and said, "I'm not going to allow you to convince, continue with your defense." I was like, Judge, you can't do that to me. I mean, uh, you're stripping me of all of my rights. She said, that's it. You're not gonna, I'm not going to allow you to continue with this defense. She ordered the jury out of the room. She told me to sit down, and she threw. Um, uh, she would now not allow me to bring any of my witnesses. So I was, I mean, I was completely hamstrung by that point. And I really thought, this is unbelievable. I couldn't believe what, what she had done. But she did it. She got away with it. But then, you know, when it came to sentencing, there was a whole different side of her that I saw and that I appealed to. And she ultimately gave me the minimum, which was 10 years. But again, as I said before, she ran it consecutive to the 15 that I already had. So, um, you know, it was a total of 25. That was my experience with the law. And to this day, I'm fascinated by it. You know, I still uh, still involved, still work for lawyers from time to time. When I got out of prison, I went to work for one of the lawyers who represented one of my co-defendants, a guy named Ivan Fisher, who was a top criminal defense lawyer here in New York. And, oh, that reminds me, now that you mention it, um, I'm going to speak to El Chapo's lawyer this afternoon. I need to call him. El Chapo has just hired a guy by the name of Jeffrey Lichtman, who is a good friend of mine and um, worked in the same law offices that I worked in. And Jeff is going to be representing uh, Mr. Guzman, who now finds himself in New York. And my first question is going to be, how did they get jurisdiction to try this guy in New York? That's going to be, um, I'm I'm supposed they're going to just say, well, some of his drugs ended up here in in New York City. I don't know how well. I don't think he was ever in New York that I know of. But, you know, the feds can do whatever they want. (laughs) But uh, the quote-unquote damage was done in New York. Yeah, they're going to say, well, some of the drugs that he imported from Mexico into the United States, and because they want to get them here in New York. You know, they know that if you get in a federal court here in New York City, chances are you're going to get convicted. Let let me ask you this, because I always have a hard time seeing these types of uh, kingpins like El Chapo and and, uh, even... Uh, gosh, I cannot believe that I forgot the name. The Colombian guy from Narcos. What's his What's his name? Pablo. Pablo Escobar. Yeah. We must be working. And I get so much criticism from my previous guest because I said this when I moved to Tucson back in 1996 or seven. I was invited. You're familiar with Tucson. I was invited yeah. to the foothills to a social gathering one night, and next to me was this lady, probably in her late fifties, sipping some wine. And I guess she had too many glasses. All of a sudden, she said, young man, look at those lights in the city. If the drugs were legalized or if drugs were were shut down, 50% of those lights would go out. And I looked at her like, excuse me? And she started more or less telling me that the CIA is all over this, that they control the supply, they control the prices, 
and the monopoly. I couldn't believe what I was hearing. So I let that go. And now this is very common. Like people know it, but this former guest said, I cannot believe that's impossible. That cannot be happening, but I can't see how El Chapo and Pablo Escobar and even Manuel Noriega, all these people must be working with the CIA. Do you have any insights on that? Well, you know, as a matter of fact, there was just a great series on the History Channel called uh, um, America's War on Drugs. And there was a great deal in that about uh, the CIA's involvement in the drug trafficking going all the way back to the war in Vietnam. But even before that, even before that, they've been involved. And the way that works is that very often in these parts of the world where there is a social uprising, and the the United States is a, opposed to the the group that might be coming up that may have communist tendencies or 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 socialist ideas. So they will they will back the uh, the warlords. They will back the the power of the powerful men in those countries. And those guys usually are involved in the drug trades, so like Nicaragua or Afghanistan. Yeah, and certainly in in um, Asia, in in in, uh, in Vietnam and in Cambodia and in all of that particular area. I mean, that was the golden triangle. That was where most of the opium that was ultimately refined and turned into heroin was coming from at that point in time. So the CIA, because those guys who were in the heroin business, in the opium business, were were our allies, they began to aid them in getting these drugs out of the country, getting them into areas where they would be sold so that they could get the money and the money would go back to these guys to, to buy them weapons. The same thing was going on in Lebanon. It was happening all that. There were CIA guys all over Lebanon when I was there. And there's no question that the CIA, you know, it's not uh, CIA general, oh, yeah, they're in the heroin business. No, it's not not the case. What it is is there are agents who work for the CIA who are involved and who work with other people who are involved in the drug trade, and it's done knowingly. I mean, certainly Oliver North knew that the people he was getting involved with in Central America were smuggling huge amounts of cocaine into this country, but they figure, well, you know, you know, the blacks are using it. It's going to the neighborhoods. No, no big deal. We're making plenty of money out of it, and we need that money. And they definitely needed it as far as the contract were concerned because the government had said, we're not going to support this war anymore. So they figured, we've got to get the money some way, so we'll get it through the drug trade. So there's no question in that. I recommend to anybody who has any questions about that, they should check out that History Channel, America's War on Drugs. They clearly... Clearly, and they had CIA people talking about it. There's a great uh, writer by the name of uh, Michael Levine who's written a couple of books. He was a DEA agent. Oh, yeah. He was with me a couple of years ago. Yeah, yeah. He wrote uh, The Big White Lie, and he wrote some of these other books about how he would be going after some of these major, major drug dealers, international drug dealers, only to find out that they were CIA assets. So, you know, there's, there's that world where where the, the the highest level criminals are rubbing shoulders with the highest levels of the intelligence community and they're in business together and for, for a, a variety of reasons. I mean, one of the guys I met when I was in prison here in New York City was Edmund Wilson, the guy who was selling uh, plastic explosives to Gaddafi and he had a, a restaurant, he and his partner had a restaurant in Lebanon. You know, these guys are, a lot of the CIA guys are um, adventurers and you know, they're they're sort of like uh, adrenaline junkies like I was. And they get, you know, I should have been a CIA agent. I probably would never had to go to prison. But, yeah, there's, <laughs> right. there's no question that, um, you know, and I met a lot of guys when I was locked up who had they'd been working with the CIA. And um, the guy who ultimately set me up to get arrested in, in, in uh, Los Angeles, his father was the the chief of the growers of hashish in the Bacaw Valley. And he himself was a captain in the U.S. Army stationed at Fort Hood in Texas. And his job, as far as I could figure, working for the Army was just selling weapons. He sold massive amounts of weapons to different factions that were involved in the, uh, in the Civil War in Lebanon. 
and his father was a major hashish dealer, and he was the one who set me up to get arrested. I think it was some kind of deal that he made ultimately to continue doing what he was doing. They finally said, look, we need this guy. You know, we've been trying to catch him for years. We don't like him. He started High Times Magazine, keeps rubbing, you know, thumbing his nose at us. We need to get Stratton. <laughs> and I'll never forget, uh, you know, the guy who arrested me was a really interesting guy. He he arrested me first up in Maine, and then he was tracking me for years. But he was a DEA agent. But I became very friendly with this guy. He kind of respected me. He knew that, um, you know, that I didn't... T- dealing hard drugs he knew that i wasn't involved in in violence we weren't killing people we were basically hippies who were smuggling marijuana and hash but we were making a lot of money and that was the thing that really upset them and you know they we were making millions and millions of dollars and we weren't paying taxes so that was i think the main reason they wanted to shut us down and now they're collecting a lot of taxes so i guess that's uh, making them change their minds a little bit but i think if you ask me who are the two forces that are trying to prevent this from happening? And that's why you have Attorney uh, General Jeff Sessions totally against it. Pharmaceuticals, Big Pharma, the CIA, mm-hmm. they're gonna, they have a lot to lose about this. But, you know, Michael Levine, he had his brothers, his brother and his son killed. Uh, Peter yeah. Christ, former police captain from New York for about 30 years, one of the founders of LEAP, uh, Law Enforcement Against Prohibition, told me, you know what, uh-huh. I used to push... This, I used to bring people to jail all the time, but I've learned. And now he wants to legalize everything. Yeah. Yeah. No, a lot of the so-called drug warriors have seen that this this war was a mistake to begin with, and they've come out against it. Levine being certainly one of the foremost voices against it. But, um, you know, there's no question it was it was wrong-headed. It was wrong. It's not something that, as America... I mean, this is the kind of thing that you do in, in a dictatorship where you tell people you can do this and you can't do that. You know, so I think, I think really, it's, it's about freedom. It's about, it's about self-determination and about people having the right to, as I say, alter their consciousness or do whatever they're doing as long as they're not hurting other people. As long as they're not doing something that's that's destructive to the community, you know, then that that then it becomes an issue that needs to be taken care of. But I think if they took the money that they waste trying to uh, stop this drug war and used it to educate, educate people, yeah, education is the answer. It's the, you know, when I was in prison, the first thing I learned while looking at I met so many these young guys who were getting arrested for small amounts of crack cocaine and huge sentences, 20 years, 25 years for, you know, basically what was a relatively small amount of crack, but they made, they made the crack laws were insane. I mean, if you got busted for a small amount of crack, you could get as much time as you, if you got busted for like a pound of powdered cocaine, which doesn't make any sense at all. You need powdered cocaine in order to make crack. So the crack laws were nuts, completely nuts. And a lot of these young kids that I was meeting from, you know, Washington, D.C. and here in New York and certain neighborhoods, they were just smart, entrepreneurial kids who really didn't have, they had, a lot of them didn't have any education at all or very little education. I thought to myself, you know, the real cause of crime in this country is illiteracy. If these kids had good educations, could read and write, were able to get good jobs, they wouldn't be out there hustling dope on the street, knowing that they're ultimately going to go to prison. So I, I just feel like our, our priorities are way off, and we need to we need to take this money that's being wasted on this drug war and look at the prison industrial complex that it has. Oh, hold it, hold it right there, because that is a big part of this conversation, and we have to take a one and only break. You know, I cannot understand, I cannot understand why marijuana is a Schedule One drug, which is, you know, when it comes to law and crime, is higher than crack cocaine. Correct me if I'm wrong. Well, yeah, cocaine, I think, is Schedule Two. Exactly. Um, the schedules make no sense at all. No sense at all. I mean, marijuana is classified with heroin. You know, I mean, look, cocaine, I'm, I'm the first person to say cocaine is a dangerous drug. You know, it, people get strung out on that stuff. Uh, I do think there's a way to legalize it, but I would, I, as I would, I would legalize it and make it, make it the, the kind of thing that you have to buy from a pharmaceutical uh, outlet, and you, you know, it's got to be controlled to some degree because it's, it's bad news. But um, 
yeah, the scheduling makes no sense at all. The marijuana schedule with heroin, it's like, it's, it has no medicinal value according to the federal government. We know that's not true. You mentioned the prison industrial complex, and we'll discuss this on the way back. But, you know, I heard recently uh, an interview with John Johnson from Miami Vice, and they asked him, you know, you want to uh, stop illegal drug problems? The, 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 the illegal drug issue? And he said, yes, the way you do it is by de-glamorizing it. And I want to take your get your take on the other side. But how can people buy the new book, Kingpin? Also... Your other books, uh, Smuggler Blue, Smuggler's Blues, and all your other books. They can buy them from Amazon. That's probably the best way to get them. <clears throat> Go to your local bookstore. You might find uh, Kingpin on the on the bookstand because it's just out. Smuggler's Blues may be around. I mean, Smuggler's Blues is this is a trilogy. Starts with Smuggler's Blues, then it's Kingpin, and then the new book that I'm working on now, which is called In the World. From the big house to Hollywood, telling about getting out of prison, gone parole, and becoming a filmmaker. Uh, that's the book I'm working on now. That will complete the trilogy. But the uh, first two are out. People can buy them or they can get them from Amazon. The easiest to get them from Amazon, you get them in like two days. Wonderful, folks. Don't go anywhere. A lot more to discuss with Richard Stratton when we come back. And by the way, no relationship between the lyrics of the song by Glenn Fry, Smugglers Blues, and your life is it no no it's just we i love that title and i think glenn loved it too i mean there's been so many great songs that have been written about uh smuggling you know this uh we can talk about that when we come back but it's had a big influence on music the marijuana <clears throat> over the years excellent well folks kingpin prisoner of the war on drugs so much more when we just came back with richard stratton this is mel fabregas and you are listening to veritas Don't go anywhere. Thanks for listening to part one of this very important Veritas interview. To listen to the rest, head on over to the member section or subscribe at VeritasRadio.com. You don't want to miss the rest. Don't forget to visit the Veritas store where you can find great products like pure organic sulfur, rebounders, turmeric, and other great supplements. Thank you. <laughs>